0: Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Murray Beyer. Let's get growing. Hi everyone. I'd like to invite you to check out our new updated website at organicgardenerpodcast.com where you can see the show notes for each episode, get the links to all the information in the show, sign up for our newsletter and download our ebook on organic gardening basics and get started on building your very own organic oasis today welcome to today's episode of the organic gardener podcast i am thrilled to introduce my guest today who has written an amazing book that i think will inspire listeners to think about different options for their future Um, his book starts out piquing your interest with a quote from a talk that a fellow farmer gave at a new england vegetable and fruit conference and this fellow farmer said sometimes i think i should have listened to my parents and become a doctor or lawyer but you know i didn't think i could take the pay cut Um, And eventually, my guest would write The Organic Farmer's Business Handbook, A Complete Guide to Managing Finances, Crops, and Staff, and Making a Profit. Um, This book comes with a companion CD that includes awesome templates. I've checked these out. I've used them myself before when trying to create a business plan. Um, And the templates are for creating worksheets, budgets, including cash flow projections, and even payroll Um, And as manager of the Kate Farm, which is a family-owned and operated organic farm in central Vermont that includes 22 acres and seven 100-foot-long greenhouses of organic vegetables, medicinal herbs, and flowers, Um, everything they sell is certified organic. So here today to dazzle you and teach you some cool things is Richard Wiswall. So welcome to the show, Richard.
1: Well, thank you, Jackie. Happy to be here. All
0: right. All right. Well, so I gave you one of the longest introductions I've given yet. Um, so do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So I've been farming um, full-time for about 35 years now. Um, and, you know, business has changed over the years. But, generally, you know, for the first 20 years, I was a kind of a very highly diversified organic vegetable, herb, flower um, producer that sold to markets in central Vermont as well as through um, a deep root organic truck farmers co-op which is a growers co-op that sells to Boston and New York to uh, bigger stores and we had a CSA in the 90's I went to farmers market for 25 years and um, as I get older I just don't want to work as hard as I used to and so we no longer go to the farmers market no longer do the CSA even though I'm big fans of both of them Um, and uh, so you know, gen- generally, what I the other thing I've been doing um, besides farming is to help other farmers trying to help tune up their businesses because I see a lot of people starting out or kind of after you know you know five or ten years feeling a struggle of being able not to make enough money and they are working long hours and and uh, burning out basically because their money's not there for um, the amount of the work they put into it, and so. I would help other farmers through workshops at conferences, and then I wrote this book because I kind of saw the same things that came up over and over again that seemed to be, uh, you know, a point needing to be addressed. And so, uh, in short, you know, I think farmers, you know, and gardeners love doing what they do for all the right reasons of being outside and watching plants grow and nurturing them and and producing delicious, nutritious food. I mean, I mean, really, what could be better? I mean, it's a fundamental satisfaction from all that. Um, but, you know, I don't think anybody gets into farming because they want to be a business person or study balance sheets or cash flow projections. But ultimately, we all have to do that just because we have to survive as a business. So the, the reality is that farming and market gardening are, if you want to make a living from it, a business... Um, and you have to know the business end of it, or you're not going to succeed. And it's, you know, you can be as um, ecologically, ecologically sustainable as um, possible, but if you're not economically sustainable, that goes out the window because you won't be in business anymore. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I just try to get folks to spend a little time to work on their business not just in their business and you know actually you know take some time out during the week set aside three hours to do some long-range thinking and planning and look at the business and, and also analyze where the money comes and goes so then you can work fewer hours and make more money I mean ultimately that'd be great I think what a lot of people want but I think farmers are tend to overwork themselves and farmers can be very guilty Of self-exploitation because they believe so strongly in what they do and for good reason because it's a great way of life that you can work longer and longer hours and sacrifice a lot of um, other parts of your life in order to make your farm succeed but that self-exploitation has a boundary at some point where you just can't do that as much anymore and you won't be able to um, keep going or you burn out so that's you know that's where i'm coming from and that's where you know i like to point people is just to say hey you know if you're going to try to make a living farming or market gardening pay attention to the business end was that a very long-winded answer to your question jackie (laughs) no that was
0: perfect um (laughs) I think a lot of people are going to like to hear that, that there are options because actually I was in a Facebook group the other day and this guy was saying, oh, you can't get into farming unless you have, you know, huge amounts of acreage and there's no money to be made and it's really a struggle. And so I think people are going to be excited to hear that if you, you know, pay a little attention to business and certainly all of my podcasting friends talk about this a lot. You know, they're always like, if your podcast isn't making money, then it's a hobby. It's not a a business, you know, you need to think about, you know, how no matter how much you want to follow your passions, um, you know, you have to be a realist. And as an artist, because my husband's really more the gardener and I'm more the artist in the family, you know, there are lessons I need to learn too. So I think people are going to be excited to hear a lot of what you have to say. And, um, you know, no matter how much we all like to do what we like to do, there's always that piece about how you're going to make money about it.
1: It's interesting you bring up, you know, how people say oh it's hard to do its um, you know there's a lot of barriers involved and that's true and I, I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that farming is a hard way to make a living um, But you know that that kind of naysayer attitude is one that is self-fulfilling and I'm not sure if it's a genetic defect of farmers that tend to kind of moan more than look on the bright side but I think what you do you hear in the farming community is that a lot more people are maybe complaining about all the things that can go wrong with their markets, pest disease, you know, tractor breaks down, whatever it might be, and you hear very little from the people that are successful, and there's a reason for that too, I think. The people that are successful don't like you know they're I think uh, they don't like to brag about their success and so you don't hear from them you all you hear are the voices of saying oh no it's and you can't make a living farming and you know that's an easy course to teach you know if you say I can't make a living farming. I said, okay, well, you just taught yourself and, you know, the more you think that, the more it's going to become true and great, you've you've achieved your goal, which is you're not going to make a living farming. And as opposed to saying, no, and I believe very strongly, I'm very bullish about farming that a good living can be made farming and that you just have to think about it and, you know, treat it as a, more as a business as opposed to just something that will fall into your lap.
0: hmm exactly. Uh... One thing that has um, kind of been a theme on my show as people have talked about their, um, you you know, I kind of go through what grew well this year and then what are you going to do different? You know, what was challenging is that even if one thing fails, the majority of what you do works. So that one little failure you're going to learn from and maybe things didn't go the way you want and every year you're going to have something, but the majority of things work. So that's been kind of nice. And so I think you're going to, Um, be really optimistic about the part about actually making a business out of your garden. But before we do go a little too much further, I do always like to start the show asking people about your very first gardening experience. You know, like, how old were you? Were you a kid, an adult? What'd you grow? Who were you with? Like, can you remember like your very first gardening experience?
1: Sure. I, my parents kept a garden all, as a kid um, all through my um, childhood. And my first gardening experience was me and my uh, brother, who was two years older than me, going out there. And I don't think we were actually hired. I think we were just asked to do it. And we were asked to flip a new piece of ground. And so we both took some spades and we were just sitting there for an hour or so, turning over sod and and then kind of hoeing it into shape. Um, that's in a very fond memory of that. Uh, kind of that there's satisfaction in kind of working with the earth. And after that, my parents would have a garden. We'd help tend the garden. But my actual first solo garden was probably when I was 19. And I was working at a summer camp and had the opportunity to have a garden plot in a kind of this community garden there. And actually, you know, that's, I think, the steep learning curve where you realize, oh, you have to, you know, Try putting in some peppers. You know, what kind of peppers are going to grow? What's the spacing? You know, what kind of fertility? Um, you get cutworms? What do you do about cutworms? And you know, all those kind of things. And um, and that was a really positive thing. It was, and and plus the fact that all the um, neighbors and fellow employees were so willing to help share their knowledge about how to do things. And that's I think part of the gardening community is that everyone is willing to help one another out. To for everyone's success, and um, that's a very positive thing. It wasn't until I actually came to Kate Farm, and tilled up an acre. So I started out small. We had an acre, had someone custom till up an acre, and we planted a, a very highly diverse kind of a shotgun approach of, you know, what would do well and what would sell well. Planted an acre, and then after the next year, we did two acres, four acres, six acres, eight acres, up to 16 acres. And so we quickly went up to scale, um, and then actually back down to about 12 because I felt like um, 12 of row of highly diverse row crops is about all that I wanted to handle with the crew that we had. Um, so, you know, that's that's my first gardening experience, and it kind of just, you know, I think I, as a kid, I always grew up. Wanting to be a homesteader me and my brother you know would go and read Mother Earth News from issue one we'd like be totally into the self-sufficiency and independent living skills um and, you know thinking that well I do you know maybe back then I thought as a kid I thought well I'd be you know half-time farmer half-time professional but then turns out it became a full-time farmer pretty quick and 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 luckily happily so
0: cool okay yeah and you you grew up in Vermont, right?
1: No, I didn't. Actually, I grew up in Long Island, about halfway out on the South Shore, which was very agricultural. I grew up around, you know, potato, cabbage farms surrounding me. Even though my family wasn't, um, they weren't farmers, but surrounded by farmers. Since then, it's changed and it's kind of grown up to houses and woods. But um, Long Island was a beautiful place to grow up in the '50s and '60s. Um, and then I moved to Vermont when I went to college. So when I was seventeen, I moved to Vermont and have been here since then.
0: Okay, I grew up on Long Island too, you... uh, so my family's still there. And it is beautiful. Like people are always surprised, but actually, Long Island's got um, you know lots of nature preserves, and um, out on the East End, there's certainly lots of farms and uh, cool places that you can visit. So I'm people are always surprised that there's nature walks and things on Long Island and trees. It... Um, Once
1: you get past the commuting line, like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. halfway up from the island, well, it does become agricultural. And the eastern end is very nice agricultural soils. And um, almost had the North, North Fork's got a, almost like a New England feel with the architecture and and look to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, like, what organic gardening or friendly gardening means to you?
1: Sure. The, you know, I think I was attracted to organic farming, well, besides reading all the Mother Earth news is way back when, I went to school and during my junior year abroad, uh, junior year I went to Nepal and lived with a farm family for three months outside of the Kathmandu Valley and living in a kind of a mud hut and, you know, they kept water buffalo and raised all their own food and subsistence level farming. And then we'd bike in to school for language and culture classes, and that was a real pivotal point of my life and you know and that was kind of uh, and then we did, I did a independent project when I was in Nepal on the effects of the green revolution um, and so that kind of started you know making me think along the lines of wanting to run my own farm and then I came back to college and um Helen and Scott nearing came to talk and I read books like. Diet for a Small Planet and Radical Agriculture and um, Wendell Berry's *Unsettling of America* kind of capped it all. Uh, But it was my farm, my college advisor who put me on a tractor one weekend to help him out disk a field, and that was when I realized that that's what I want to be doing. Um, So that's kind of you know how I kind of started doing it. Could you restate your question there, please, Jackie? Uh,
0: I just said like, what does organic gardening or organic gardening mean to you?
1: Okay, so what does organic gardening mean to me is kind of living by a set of value or, you know, well, for me, being an organic farmer, I like uh, having a business that doesn't compromise any of my values for a healthy planet and treating people well and producing nutritious food. I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, It is the greatest job in the world. And so what it means to me is to use... Nature's cycles to um, produce a nutritious food um, without any undue um, impact or harmful impact, and so for me, it's you know using as much that's given to us, whether it's sunlight, atmospheric nitrogen, carbon, um, a, a very well, incredibly diverse microbial uh, or um, complex soil. Uh, and interrelationships that we can use to grow ver- good food for plants and animals, uh, plant, people, plants, and animals. And so to me, you know, organic gardening is, I mean, on a very technical level, you know, we're certified organic, and so we have a now a federal law that says what's organic and what's not. But, you know, in a more general sense, it's more of using those natural cycles Nutrient cycling as much as possible, and treating and treating the soil with utmost respect, so you're encouraging it as opposed to, you know, depleting it or mining it. Um, uh, so, and, and so on a practical level, you know, we use a lot of cover crops. So we'll, we have enough. We have the um, ability because we have more acreage than available to us than we actually row crop, that we can rotate things in and out of cover crops and eventually got a combine so we could actually grow grains and combine those off as part of a rotation. But generally, if we grow cover crops, we're basically growing a crop that is, you know, um, resting the soil from row crops as well as increasing its um, biological activity and increasing its organic matter by just plowing the crop back into the ground. Okay. So that's a that's a kind of a basis of fertility, but we also use a lot of composts and rock minerals depending on the soil test. And so we depend on soil tests quite a bit to see what rock minerals, whether it's you know, rock phosphate or green sand or lime that we can put on our soils to to achieve the balance that we're looking for.
0: Okay there's a lot there do you want to tell <laughs> listeners like what a cover crop is in case they don't know i know oh, some sure. of my guests have talked about it but maybe you know if they're new to the show or something just really quickly
1: sure so a cover crop is any kind of crop that you put on a ground that might not be for consumption meaning that i mean it could be so if you have a bare ground that you're not going to use next year say um you know we you know you could see a a cover crop could be anything from oats to rye to a mix of grasses to peas to um, radishes to anything that basically helps contribute organic matter, shade out weeds, and um, then will get tilled back in to um, basically feed the microbes in the soil so that in the future you can then plant your garden with very little extra... Uh, inputs, and so yeah, cover crops can come in all different forms, and cover crops some are nitrogen fixing the legumes, you know peas, beans, alfalfa clovers, and then some and some are uh, used for kind of smothering out weeds that kind of grow close together and shade out all the other weeds, things like oats, um, rye, buckwheat, and so you, you know you can do mixes, and you know it's kind of fun to try different things, some are cold hardy, some are not cold hardy. And, you know, as a gardener, you know, in the fall, once you get everything out of the ground, it's nice to sow just some oats. You can just get some, you know, oat feed from the feed store and sprinkle it on your ground and it'll pop right up. And then they'll grow a few inches and then, depending where you are in the United States, but they'll winter kill you know, in the north and then next year you can just quickly till that, um, the dead oat straw into the into the soil and build your soil that way. So it protects your soil, it increases your soil biological activity, it adds carbon, all good things.
0: Cool, okay. That was a nice, long, detailed answer, I like that. Do you wanna tell us about something that grew well this year?
1: Um, well, this year we actually had a very challenging spring weather-wise, and uh, right now, we have a lot of um, cover crops in the ground, and. As I mentioned before, as I get older, I don't want to work so hard, so we're doing less row crops and more greenhouse crops, and so the greenhouse crops are kind of insulated from bad weather, so, you know, of the greenhouse crops, uh, we have seven greenhouses that um, we grow some seedlings for sale for other people like six packs of you know tomatoes and broccoli kind of thing and then we have a couple of greenhouses that we grow tomatoes in the ground and we graft our tomatoes I can talk about that later if people are interested okay yeah and then we also have other greenhouses that we rotate out of tomatoes that we grow you know greens you know lettuce and beets and other you know things in the ground that we harvest for sale um, so in terms of how did the season go outside it was okay we actually had a um, partial crop loss due to weather and that's just you roll with the punches and um, in the greenhouses everything is fine because we can control the um, the heat because we have these roll up sides that can go up and down so we can lower them when it's cold and we have drip irrigation so we can add water when we need it and of course the top of the greenhouse when even when it's open is like a big umbrella so we can control the you know those are big factors in terms of getting a crop is provide the right growing conditions and so um, yeah so do you keep
0: the greenhouses going through the winter then?
1: So no in Vermont um, while you can our markets are much more spring and summer and fall oriented but in the winter time at least where we are Um, at 44 degrees north latitude that you um, don't have enough photo period. The Days are too short from you know somewhere end of November, beginning of December until the first week of February and so basically nothing will grow without lights, without supplemental lighting. And so what you can do is you can actually start some spinach in September say and let it get up to be almost full-size and then, as it gets colder, even without the heat on, it'll um, it'll just be like having a refrigerator full of spinach. Then, on a sunny day when it warms up, you can go cut it and sell it, um, and then it can freeze solid and no big deal. Um, and then, come springtime, that February 15th window, all of a sudden it'll start regrowing. So, if you cut it all, you know, during the winter, you can it'll actually sprout up again and. Um, get another crop off by, you know, end of March. So we don't, we do that with spinach, but generally we like to freeze our greenhouses to kill pests and diseases. So we let them get 20 below zero and uh, we drain the water, but we let them get really cold just to help control pests and disease.
0: Cool. Okay. Uh, I think listeners will like that because I think I, like when I first asked, I was wondering. I was like, "Oh man, did they keep their greenhouses going all winter? Is that part of your secret?" Some uh, some people
1: some people in Vermont do, and for certain things. And there's some, a tomato grower that does that as well. Um, but no, generally it, the other thing is like I don't like using. Um, Fuel to heat our greenhouses, as, or any more than we have to. And I used to make biodiesel for all the house, for the greenhouses. I used to take French fry, old French fry oil, and make biodiesel, and then heat all our greenhouses with a bio, homemade biodiesel. Um, but for re- other reasons, um, I'm not doing that any longer. And so we tend to just to heat our greenhouses later in the spring, and then not at all in the fall. So we're just using less fuel, but. You know, I I did want to say, if there's time, just to talk about greenhouse tomatoes, for any gardener um, of any scale, if you're having problems growing tomatoes with um, early blight or other um, leaf diseases, that a simple unheated greenhouse makes your job so much easier because what you can do is you can actually prevent rain from falling on the leaves which get the surfaces, if you can keep the leaf surface dry, um, then you eliminated 95% of any problem because you, they can't colonize bacteria and fungi on it. And so if you can have a, you know, a covering over it with roll-up sides, so you can lower it to keep it on cool nights to keep it that uh, extra warmth. You can produce, you know, fantastic tomatoes that taste great um, and that look perfect like those catalog pictures. Um, and, and simply by what we do is we trellis them so we actually drop strings down from the greenhouse structure until they're about eight feet tall, and so we just have these like it looks like a hedge row when you walk into the greenhouse. These five rows that are you know ten feet tall, eight feet tall, um, you know loaded with tomatoes, uh, and so you know and and again it's not hard to do, but you do have to have some kind of greenhouse structure. But even on a small scale, it's a proven winner and. You know, almost every professional grower that I know relies on greenhouse tomatoes and not field tomatoes. I mean, they do sometimes grow field tomatoes, but it's so much better to grow them in greenhouses. And I think, unfortunately, maybe listeners are reacting saying, oh, greenhouse tomatoes don't taste that good. But they get a bad rap from other um, kind of commercial growers. But a greenhouse tomato actually tastes better than a homegrown outside tomato because you're actually providing everything that it likes it. You're providing warmer nights. You're providing even irrigation through drip lines. You're providing higher fertility and better management. Um, And so uh, it's everything a tomato wants, and and hence they taste better. And you can grow different, you know, uh, any variety in a greenhouse, but you can also grow these incredibly good tasting ones um, that you know'll we'll be producing right up through you know a hard freeze outside
0: nice uh, do you have raised beds in the greenhouse or they're in the ground in the greenhouse or what so are they're they in the in?
1: so basically when I talk about a greenhouse you know um, these are metal hoop kind of you know um, gable pitched roof metal, I mean like metal pipe frames with covering of plastic, usually one or two layers of plastic, of green, special greenhouse poly that lasts five or six years. And um, so we basically, you can just take regular garden soil and put a greenhouse over it by putting these posts in the ground and cover it with plastic. And so what we do is we'll do that. We'll have a greenhouse and we will add compost and rock powders and then Till the beds up, and then we make kind of small raised beds, but not like dramatically. Um, and then lay drip lines, and then put a mulch on top of the drip lines, and then plant through the mulch t- tomatoes through the mulch. And from there, we drop strings from the ceiling, and, and then they climb up like Jack and the beanstalk.
0: Okay, so I have two questions. So when you said you plant, you plant. You don't put the seeds in the ground, though. You're putting starts that maybe seeds you started somewhere. Or you're That's seeds correct. Strictly? So
1: basically, we will start our tomatoes in a flat and grow them up to about eight inches tall or something like that, and then bring them into the greenhouse to grow in the ground for the their so the rest of their life until they set red fruit and um, get pulled out later in November.
0: Okay, and then so when do you start? the seeds, and then when do you transplant them into the greenhouse?
1: So a tomato plant, from the time that you take a seed to the time you want to transplant it into the ground to its permanent resting spot, you know, you're talking six weeks or eight weeks, somewhere in there. And then from there, um, you put them in the ground. So basically, we'll start seeds inside under lights um, in February, and then we'll transplant them in late March into a greenhouse, say April 1st here. And then from April 1st, um, it'll probably be another 60 days before we start getting red fruit. It takes about 60 days for an open yellow tomato flower to set red fruit, depending on variety, obviously. But um, just to give you a sense of that, two months from that. And so basically we'll start having red fruit in the greenhouse end of June, July 1st, somewhere in there. And then wow. the nice thing about that is, uh, A, you're you're not competing with every other home gardener who won't have tomatoes until the middle of August. Yeah. And so people, you know, there's market demand, which is nice. And besides that, they taste great. <laughs> um, so uh, and then what we'll do is we'll keep growing the tomatoes in the ground. Um, and then... Uh, because it takes 60 days from flower to red fruit you know around September 1st we'll go and top all the plants basically without getting too complicated about um, the biology of the tomato plant we can um, take if you top the plant and stop its growth of any new fruit then you're channeling all the energy into the existing fruit and so then you'll have more productive fruit before you end up pulling the greenhouse, pulling the plants out when it's too cold, say November 1st. That's our mark. So basically when it gets November 1st, it gets too cold to be really growing tomatoes without extra heat. And that's when we pull them out. So that's why on September 1st, we top them and just let no new flowers emerge. And all we're trying to do is channel the growth into the existing fruit that's on the plant already. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Your okay. season must be way different than ours. By September, we're looking at frosts already.
1: We get, uh, we are too, and so but we're getting frost. But if you have that layer of plastic, and you have the ability to roll down the sides, um, you can go to my website, and I think there's some pictures in the photo gallery of roll up sides where you can see, you know, the, the all the sidewalls just raise up and down four or five feet, so you get the cross breeze going through there. Um, but then at night we can roll them down, and so they retain the heat, and so. Even if it is 27, 26 degrees outside, if you have that layer of plastic with the mass inside of heat, it will not freeze inside the greenhouse. So that's without any supplemental heat. Um, And then if you wanted to, you could actually just take your barbecue grill, turn it on and leave it in there overnight and that would give enough heat to keep it from freezing.
0: Wow, okay. it still seems fast for growing tomatoes 60 days and you're getting fruit so then do you plant them in a succession so that you're getting fruit if you're getting fruit in june you must put some in later so that you're getting them throughout the summer that's a great or do they just keep producing or
1: they do keep producing that's a great observation and um one that um uh, so basically there's a, a bell curve of production on tomatoes and most plants you know whether they're beans or peas you know they kind of start out light and then in the middle of production you get tons of fruit and then at the end they kind of slow down a little bit again as they senesce um, so we, we do is we do three different plantings so we do an early planting and then wait two weeks do another plant, trans, another transplanting and then another two weeks and do another transplanting so that way they're not All planted at once, all coming up at once. We have it, it evens out that bell curve effect. Um, But a tomato will grow, well, if you were to heat it all winter and had supplemental lights, it'll grow year-round. And you can grow one plant 100 feet long if you were to keep, you know, pruning off the leaves and just letting that growing tip have place to grow. You could either grow it 100 feet straight up but most i don't know anybody that does that you can also grow it sideways and so you can grow it sideways 90 feet and 10 feet up just at the growing tip and that's you know that's commonly done not commonly but it is done um to maximize production for that
0: oh okay all right so i just got to clarify just a couple more things so you're doing three plannings weeding two weeks but like So let's say you're going to plant 10 varieties of tomatoes. Do you like, so you transplant the first 10 varieties or do you plant like a certain variety and then two weeks later you plant a different variety and then two weeks later a different variety or all 10 varieties go in the first day and two weeks later all 10 more and then do you understand what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we call them waves. And so the first wave will be all 10 varieties of, you know, of of okay. one-third of the total year's worth, and then the second wave will be the same mirror, mirror image of that. So you're always getting, okay. you know, each variety um, spread out over the, course of the, uh, uh, over the course of the season. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out is we do graft our tomatoes, and I encourage people to play around with this because it's, uh, um, it's pretty exciting it sounds kind of crazy, but people have been grafting apple trees for a long time, and they've actually been grafting um, plants in Asia for, since the uh, early 1900s because they have more pressures on space and um, producing food. So grafting tomatoes is pretty much just the way it sounds like. What we do is we'll grow a side-by-side. We put one seed or have one tray of a rootstock and one tray of the top good tasting tomato that we want. And we grow them side by side until maybe three or four inches tall. Maybe the stem is a diameter of a toothpick or a a thick matchstick kind of thing. And then um, you kind of make a bias cut in each of them and kind of fuse the stems together. And then once they fuse, you cut the top off the rootstock and keep the... Top of the good-tasting tomato, and so we can do that because these rootstocks are such vigorous growers. I mean, it's just unbelievable how vigorous they are. You end up getting not only earlier fruit, but twice the production of the tomato that if you didn't graft it. And we've done this side by side a number of times where we put. Um, we we grow this one variety called Buffalo, which unfortunately you can't get anymore. But we bought five years worth of seed and put it in our freezer. But so we grow buffalo on, a, on the rootstock of Maxifort. And, you know, we do those side by side. And, you know, they start out about the same, but then all of a sudden it's like um, the horse race going crazy. So basically, you know, one plant will be eight feet tall and the other one will be about three or four feet tall. And so we've gone to grafting all our tomatoes now. Um, and certain people even graft other things, too. You can Google it. You know, you can graft cucumbers. You can graft winter squash and um, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, and, you know, it, the thing is you have to buy two seeds in order to get one plant. But because that plant produces twice as much, you have to put out half as many plants in the end. So it's kind of a wash.
0: And so my guess number 100 was... Um, Bill McDorman, who talked about saving seeds, and he talks about how many seeds you get from a tomato. So it seems like if you're saving your seeds, it would you'd have two seeds. I mean, he said the big problem a lot of people are getting is, what do I do with all these seeds anyway? So if you start saving your own seeds, that would That's be, true. be a big problem.
1: It, that wouldn't be a problem if you're growing open-pollinated tomatoes. And so Um, I'm sure that's what he was talking about was, you know, saving open pollinated, which are true to type, whereas um, the one variety that we really like is a hybrid. So we actually have to um, start with a a seed, not from our own source, but from the company that uh, protects its um, parentage. So, uh, but yeah, so that's true. I mean. I guess you know we do save our own seed on a lot of on a few things that are easier to do, um, but because of tomatoes you don't have to isolate so much, but certain things you have to isolate quite a bit and worry about um, cross pollination um, from either insects or wind or um, so we don't try to save all our seeds, but uh, I think it's great to try to do that and you can, and you can also do some of your own breeding too
0: okay uh, there was something else I was going to ask you. Oh, can you explain what rootstock is?
1: So, yeah, rootstock is just a hardier type of tomato. It's a tomato that, you know, if you were to grow it out, you know, wouldn't taste good at all to, you know, but the plant itself is it grows like a weed. And so they have different varieties of rootstock, Maxifort, Estimo. Beaufort. And you can go, like if you were to go to Johnny's, I don't know if you get a Johnny's selected seed catalog where you are, but they're a great company out of Maine. And they have these tutorials online. You can go there and see how to graft. And they kind of explain it. So it's a good way of getting the visuals of what is actually happening. Um, But you can use, generally when you get a rootstock, it's just a type of tomato that is a very vigorous growing um, tomato. And then you graft onto the top of that the variety that you want to grow that might not be as vigorous a grower.
0: Cool. Okay. Is there something you're going to do different next year that you're excited to try? I know you're kind of like on the other end of the spectrum getting ready to retire, but.
1: Well, we always, my my wife actually is the one who um, does the seedling, you know, the um, seedlings that we sell to the general public. And she is always trying new things that um I've never even heard of and so it's always fun. So we'll uh you know, we'll ha- we'll be selling things that uh I haven't ever grown but are always kind of fun. Um but that's her department. And uh we're gonna be pretty much right now, you know, partly because I've been doing it for three to five years, you know, we've kind of reached cruising altitude and, you know, we can you know, go along at cruising altitude without, that, and tweaking things as we go, but not take huge monumental um, changes. And that's kind of what we'll keep doing. Um, and except for the you know the varieties that we're doing and that I, my wife, is doing in the greenhouse, um, that are always new and different, uh, we'll probably be keeping doing the same, same basic farm plan that we've been doing for the last few years. And
0: then, uh, do you want to tell us about um, like? if you were starting out with a farmer's market, or like maybe some success tips for people, like for a farmer's market or for a CSA.
1: Absolutely. Like it, can- there, there's a lot of, um, lot of, um, tips I would give and, um, I don't know if I could do it in less than five minutes. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, generally, you know, whenever you're starting out, especially if you're gonna, you know, try to make your garden or farm be a business that's self-sustaining, you know, try to think it through from now until the end. So try to visualize, you know, where the money's gonna come at the end of the year. And to do that, you know, you wanna, first of all, make sure that before, if you can, before you plant any seeds, is to have an idea where that that product is, you know, whatever that seed is going to grow into is going to get sold to, and that means kind of researching some markets. And you know, with the CSA or farmers market, you have a sense of it. But you can go knock on the back of restaurant doors and and um, food stores and ask them what they might be looking for, how much they would take a week, how much they would pay, and start this kind of informal relationship of trying to get you know, a sense of what. Um, the market will bear and, you know, would they buy from you if you brought in, you know, a a case of lettuce or a bag of carrots that, you know, is of good quality for the going rate. And so if they are, you know, and and I also always say, you know, I always ask, you know, are you getting it from any other local grower? Because I don't want to compete with my other neighbors and local growers. I think, you know, we want to work together, not at odds to each other. So, but if they're getting it from, Um, someplace far away that um, then I don't mind taking that uh, taking a piece of the marketing pie from that so if you can develop this kind of even just a handshake relationship with a buyer whether it's a a chef or a a produce manager um, then you can you know just check in with them in the winter check in with them again in the spring and then check in two weeks before you have the product ready to sell and then Come in, you know, and you know, just it's basically marketing is a relationship. And it's, if you can maintain a positive relationship with your um, customer or um, people that are buying your products, then it should be self sustaining. And so, once you make that first sale, you bring in that case of lettuce or the bag of carrots, and they look at it and they say it's good quality, prices is agreeable. They make that sale, then it's a pivotal, pivotal point that you can then say, great, yeah, it's your first sale. And then hopefully, as long as you don't do anything wrong, that they sh- they'll buy from you week after week, as long as you have that product in year after year, um, with negotiation and review at the end of the year of what worked and what didn't. So marketing is a big part of making it all work. And the other big part of it is, is to, you know, after you ask, assess what you have as available market to you and what you want to grow and if you will work or not. The other thing is just to make sure that if you were to take your top three or four sellers of your farm, make sure that they're paying for themselves, meaning that the amount of work you do and the amount of inputs that you're putting into that crop is less than the amount of sales that you're getting on the, uh, on the, when you sell it. And it can be on the back of an envelope. It can be, you know, something very simple. But just, you know, you know, I do this in workshops. You know, these quick budgets where I'll say, okay, I give parameters of saying two feeder pigs. It costs eighty dollars each, and they raise for six months. They eat so many pounds of feed at this price, and this is how much time it takes. You know, we figure that out and say, okay, is that going to work or not? And it just roughs out the the finances so people can say, okay. I need to really focus on maintaining my feed costs and I need to focus on, you know, being as efficient as possible in shores and and also getting this price per pound if I need to make it all pay. So, and and, you know, it's not unfortunately, but you know, if you're a diversified farm, you're doing so many things that it's, you know, a lot of times you don't keep track of those things. But if you're just to target two or three or four things that you sell the most of, then you at least know where the the big money filling up your checking account is making sure it's not all leaking out at the same time.
0: Okay. And then that's what a lot of the worksheets in your book are. Right.
1: right? So right. the worksheets to talk my, about that at all? Sure. The worksheets in my book, unfortunately, are a little mind-numbingly complicated because I had to be completely transparent to the reader. My own worksheets are much simpler, but um, there's a lot of fine print and only, again, so people could see where I got all those numbers from. Um, and they work great, you know, you just can download them, copy them and then just you know, enter your own prices and inputs. But you can also make them a lot simpler, but generally what I try to do is just to stress to folks to just spend a little time again working on your business and analyzing, you know, maybe it takes, sit down for an hour and say okay am I making money on this or not? And And include their time, you know, or put some value on your time. Because one thing I can guarantee you that we all have in common is that we only have 24 hours in a day. And some of those hours are needed for sleep and some are eating and some are for family. The point is that our work hours are limited. You know, you can work 16-hour days. You can do that for a while, but you can't do it for the rest of your life. Um, And so, you know, just make sure that you're treating your time wisely and you know put a value on it you know I, and I, I also say folks when they're trying to figure that out, it's like well what would you like to make an hour you know 15 20 an hour you know something like that and and so use that number say yeah if I wasn't farming and I could be a you know waiter at a restaurant or I could be a landscaper for 15 or 20 dollars an hour yeah that's kind of a substitute wage and so you can kind of get a sense of what um, that might be.
0: And, um, you know, I think that's important. And I think that people might be surprised if they looked at those numbers. Um, maybe something they didn't realize was making as much money might be something they want to focus on more. And that would help them bring in more money and give them more time with their family or doing the things that they really want to do, including just even having more time in your own garden to enjoy it. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I know. And- my podcasting friends talk about that a lot. They're always like, download this program that will record everywhere you've been for a week. And it'll tell you how much time you spend on Facebook and how much time you spend here and how much time you spend there. And then you can analyze your production. And so it's kind of like the same thing. They're like, I know it takes a long time. And, you know, some people will be like, you know, write down everything you're going to do for an hour, you know, by the 15 minute blocks or an hour block, you know, what you do for a week or two weeks. And then really in I gotta say, I haven't taken the time to do that, but I know people talk about that a lot, to be efficient and find out where you can find some extra time.
1: And I bet it's surprising about how, many, how much time we spend doing things we don't think we're doing that much of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whether it's on Facebook or, you know, shopping or whatever it might be. Um,
0: and then, like I said, you know, sometimes you might find, you might be surprised at some crop that you didn't realize was making as much money is actually more profitable, in the long run, and then you might want to expand that crop more.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, if you're a diverse, you are not even have to be diversified. If you're a farmer doing more than one thing, and say you're doing five different things, I can guarantee you that the five things you're doing are not equally profitable, profitable. that, you know, that there's going to be a, they're going to be on a scale of good to um, not so good or not, or good to than that. and. So if as long as you know that, once you can uncover that, then you can say, great, I'm going to emphasize this or I'm going to try to raise the sales price or lower expenses on the le- lesser profitable ones. And, you know, it's, again, just shining a light on your business so then you can be a better manager and, like you're saying, have more time and, you know, just being a smarter farmer um, in the end because you'll be able to have more time and not working as hard for it.
0: And then you also might see like if you have one customer that's buying a lot of one thing, uh, like especially like do you sell a lot of like greens and lettuces and things like that to restaurants, or is that kind of
1: We like, used I to we don't that right? we used to do that more we're not doing that um, anymore we, we again, like our business has changed, so we're growing less variety and more of fewer things so
0: um, but I was just, I guess I was thinking along the thread of you might find more customers. You might be like, wow, this person's really buying a lot of this. Maybe I should, you know, introduce this or suggest this to other customers that weren't buying it was, I guess, where I was going.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, and I think the other thing is, I mean, with marketing, you know, if you're selling one thing, then you can hopefully laterally increase your product offering by offering them other things that you might be growing that they might be interested in. Okay. Uh, yeah, marketing, you know, it's it can be fun. It can be sometimes frustrating. But I think, you know, you want to look at it as, again, a win-win situation. You know, if you have a you – know, I'm a very cooperatively-minded person. And, you know, I really think that our world would be a better place if we can have a food chain that um, isn't exploitive of um, one producer, you know, or of the producer middle person or – Um, or the consumer, but a win-win situation that, you know, I can grow something at a fair price for me that you can still buy at a fair price to you. Um, And that's the relationship. The same thing with any produce manager. You want to be on the same side and say, Hey, let's talk about price. I need to make this. You need to sell it for that. How can we make this work? And once you have that relationship, that's a great thing to have.
0: I like that. What's your favorite activity to do in the garden?
1: (laughs) That's a good one. Um, I like it all. Um, You know, I guess what I really like about my job is that it's – the seasonal aspect of it is that I don't do one thing 365 days a year. Um, And so, you know, in the spring, you're kind of, um, you know, dealing or, you know, you're busy – preparing soil and making beds um, uh, and, you know, getting seeds in the ground. And then, you know, you're doing that kind of all year, but the bulk of it's happening in the early spring. And then, you know, then we have this kind of a wave of weeding in June and July. And then we're starting to harvest. And then we have a big harvest, you know, from August until we can't harvest any longer until, you know, November 1st or whenever it gets too cold. And so you're doing these things, and so by the time, you know, like sometimes, you know, after 10 weeks of doing seedlings, it's like, you know, it's okay to let seedlings go by. And then you're moving on to field crops, and then when field crops, you know, you're, after a few months of that, you're harvesting them, and then you're packing them out in the wintertime. It's a great kind of um, cycling of different tasks, and that's what I kind of, I like them all. Um, I wouldn't want to do one every day for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. but uh i enjoy them all when they are in you know in their appropriate season
0: how about on the flip side is there an activity that you don't like that you got to kind of force yourself to get out there and do
1: um yeah i'm trying to think what those would be i guess the least one of my least favorite things to do is collecting money from people that don't pay up and that, and that, and then also, and maybe dealing with conflict resolution with either um, accounts or you know people that work here. Um, those would probably be the things that you know. It just you know, anytime you have a relationship, there are times that you have to work on it, and those are probably the harder, it's, um, the harder times. But you know, I guess if it's uh, and if it's. 20 degrees outside and blowing snow and you got to go pick kale. I guess that gets kind of old too. <laughs> but, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, weather. I mean, we've slogged around in some pretty miserable times, you know, getting the truck stuck and, you know, it's like, uh, you do it because mm-hmm. that you have to.
0: <laughs> yep. One of my guests down south said that the one she hated the most is having to go out and when it's super hot and the mosquitoes are out. So, yeah, yeah. weather's a big... Big yeah weather it.
1: is it yeah and and get that you sign up for that, you know i I try not to complain about that because that's part of the game um, you know that I signed up for mm-hmm.
0: but that's good to share yeah. How about what's the best gardening advice you have ever received?
1: Um, that that things want to grow, that plants want to grow, and we just have to step out of the way sometimes that you know. it's a a wonder that a seed contains all this genetic information for it to go from this minuscule um, seed into a fully developed plant that will then go through its life cycle and set another seed, but, you know, usually harvested before that. And that, you know, you have to not screw up because plants will grow and just you know and have that faith in that you know that um that you know just plants are on your side i guess
0: cool i like that what's your favorite tool like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you what could you not live without
1: mm. well it'd probably be a shovel but it's a tough one um i, I, I could have if i thought about it i could probably come up with more uh, in, uh, humorous answer to that, but um, something for me it would just be something very elemental for working with the soil.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. How about a favorite? Do you have a favorite recipe from the garden? If you don't,
1: that's fine. I don't. Yeah, no. That's a, it's like it's kind of like saying, mm-hmm. "What's your favorite dessert?" Well, that's like there's too many of them. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> How about an internet resource? Is there anywhere you go on the internet? To...
1: Well, in Vermont, we're very lucky to have um, a guy named Gru- Vern Grubinger, who is the um, UVM University of Vermont Extension uh specialist and he does a list serve for all the professional growers in New England and so basically that resource you can ask any question and any number of growers will answer it. You can advertise things, you can um, be kept aware of the news and so for us that's like a huge resource and I encourage other states to do that as well. Um, And so then but, you know, that same group, the University of Vermont Extension, has a, a group called the Vermont Veg and Berry Growers. And if they have a website with all of these fact sheets and information that, you know, if you Google Vermont veg, veg and Berry Growers or Vegetable and Berry Growers, it'll come up to a website. And it's just got tons of information. So that's probably the first place I go to when I'm looking for something.
0: Okay. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. How about a favorite book besides your Amazing Organic Farmer's Business Handbook?
1: Boy, there's a lot of books. I'm going to have to think about that one, too. Sorry.
0: That's all right. Uh, well, you kind of talked about business advice for listeners. Did you have anything else there? I mean, we've talked about that quite a bit, actually. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I guess, nice um, I'm, I, I'm. you know, I, I'd love to see more people you know, farming, making a living farming that are, you know, happy in what they're doing and not overworking themselves and sacrificing uh, other parts of their life to do it. And so, you know, ultimately I think we can all, you know, if we all could, you know, state what we want in life and then once you do that then it's a lot easier to achieve it. And so I think sometimes just sitting down and thinking about what is it you're really looking to do or wanting to do and then once you articulate that and actually maybe writing it on paper to make it more real that you can say okay this is what i want and that's when you're going to be able to go get it it's hard to to achieve a goal if you don't know what the goal is and so and that's you know um i think good advice for uh, you know anybody not just farmers and i think the other thing i do with or have you know recommend for folks to do is to you know if you're farming or doing a market garden already is just to spend five minutes and write down your job likes and dislikes, just like you were asking me before. You know, what is it that you like about your farming or your your job, and what is it you don't like? And acknowledge it, but then also, obviously try to do the things you like doing and maybe, you know, get someone else to do the things you don't like. If you don't like bookkeeping, or if you don't like sales, or if you don't like um, record keeping, get someone else to do it. You know, truth be told, I don't like record keeping... Um, as much as anybody else it's just that I realize that I have to do it in order to make my business as uh, well tuned as it can be and you know it's a, it's a necessary part of being a business but it's not like I love to record keep I don't think anybody does but um, it, it's more of the fact that yeah this is part of the job description mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of running a business and thinking about life is I'm a big goal setter. So I really like goals and having hard um, goals written down. And then I like that part about, you know, finding somebody else because, you know, my guests have answered that in a short run of ways. Tons of people have said I hate weeding and tons of people have said weeding's my favorite thing. So you'd be surprised if you think you really don't like something that there is somebody out there that maybe wants to help you do that piece and they're really good at it. And like marketing, like tons of people like are afraid of social media marketing and they really like their like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and they don't want to have any part of it. But then I think also sometimes when you start doing it, you realize it's actually can be quite fun. And so maybe you just need to um, find an easier way. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Tell people about coaching because I think coaching is essential and, and people don't value A coach and you have coaching services so I think you should tell people tell us today about like what they could get what it looks like or just I don't know
1: sure so basically what I do is I work through a couple organizations here in Vermont where um, I will work with a farmer or a farm to kind of tune up their business or make a business plan or you know go over just basically go over with the farm you know what their goals are and how to achieve them and you know, I go in there, and even though I think because I'm a farmer, people um, maybe are more willing to listen, but I will give homework at the end of the two or three hour session. And, you know, it's not like they're going to fail or, you know, get, get reprimanded if they don't do their homework, but just that simple nudge of someone by someone like myself is all they need to, to make them do it. And in fact, I could use sometimes a nudge because there's t- times that I procrastinate things that you know I can put off because it's not super urgent, but you know a lot of times the farmers that I work with you know, have just been waiting for an excuse for someone to ask them to do it. And It's as simple as a request that all of a sudden they they spend the hour that it takes them to do it, and then I can review it. And this coaching business goes you know back and forth, and we become great friends usually, and you know it's a confident relationship that we have, and you know, it helps them just take time away from their workaday world to, again, look at their business and try to make uh, to shine a light on what's go- really going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan, and I think there's coaching. You know, in all different shapes and forms, you just have to look around for it in your neighborhood.
0: Mm-hmm. And like, um, so back to my pocket. Like, I finally got an accountability partner in September. And it's just been huge. Both of us have seen just giant jumps in our podcast and um, things that we knew we needed to get done. But sometimes just talking it through with somebody really helps. Um, and sometimes, you know, finding that right partner. And then also I'm taking this online class right now and we're doing a lot of exactly the things you're doing. And it's really nice because it's not like an online class where you go at your own pace. We actually, like there's a teach, head teacher and there's a support group and you have homework assignments each week. And one of our first assignments at the first week or I think it was last week, uh, we're in week three, almost starting week four. Now, uh, week two was setting your goals and writing them down on paper and figuring out what do you want for your business and where do you want it to go? And just, you know, a, as you write it down and have to get more specific, you can kind of really fine tune what, what do I really, really want it to be? And then the guy who's the head of my podcast groups, his, he has this acronym for focus. He says, follow one course until success. He's always kind of on our cases. Of course, I'm like of the polish the shiny object syndrome because I wouldn't even have a podcast if I hadn't been polishing that shiny object. So, I don't know. I think think
1: that's great advice, what you just said. And um, having a goal and just, you know, once you articulate it and write it down, it it makes you think about what it is you really want. and that's what you really want to do in life is get what you want i mean it seems kind of simple but it's not so easy to do
0: and it's really they talk a lot about find somebody who's done what you want to do before and get them to be your mentor or your coach like yeah. there's no reason to constantly reinvent the wheel and that having somebody there and it—and it's definitely been true for me that way is having somebody to um kind of walk me through the steps of my podcast and now having my accountability partner he's just a little bit ahead of me but i help him too i know in a lot of ways and we go to each other's websites and we read each other's emails that we send out, even though we have two completely different businesses and just, but we're both podcasters and, and I can't, and the, I just can't recommend enough to people if they want help to contact you.
1: Yeah. And I think it, and for, in, in your case, you know, eventually, not eventually, but you know, you'll be helping other people when they start up their podcast, because you'll have the experience to share with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so. i did
0: actually just start teaching a podcasting course kind of oh good i'm hoping yeah. i'm gonna go through my co- community college eventually so i'm kind of doing like a beta group right now uh okay here's my final question ready
1: okay i'm ready I if brace there's myself. <laughs> one
0: change you would like to see to create a greener world what would it be for example is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale?
1: A uh, huge question, and I'll answer it in a different way. Sure. I mean, we have, you know, we have the global um, climate change, which is uh, something that we have to address. But th- I don't want to talk about that. I'd rather say that my hopes lie in the fact that you have. Young and older people that want to make a living off of land on on any scale it could be from you know small acreage to bigger acreage. That you can, it's an incredibly strong economic engine if we can get a lot of people growing food on um, for themselves as a small family or you know single person unit and generating money. And I think you know it's an un Uh, it's not that glamorous, it's not like IBM with, you know, 10,000 employees, but, you know, if you have 10,000 farmers all working towards, you know, producing food, it has the same effect. And uh, it's a backbone of most local communities of having, you know, a strong agricultural um, and prosperous agricultural community. And so that's where I really feel like, you know, and that'll solve a lot of the other problems, um in our world that we face today but so i guess that's where i I, you know i'm hoping that happens more and i see a lot of interest with young people and i think it's great and i just hope that they um can i just wish them success you know Mm -hmm.
0: cool uh do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own guard
1: well, I think it's such a fun thing to do, and gardening is the most popular pastime for a good reason because it is like a fun and satisfying, and you, there's there's no end to the learning curve because you can always learn something new and highly creative. There's so many good things about gardening that um, uh, that I encourage anybody to try it.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay, so. I do have a big note at the bottom of my sheet that says, don't forget to mention Chelsea Green. Do you want to just give a quick plug for Chelsea Green? Because sure. I che- love Chelsea Green Publishing. And hopefully Chelsea- I'm going to get some of them to come on soon.
1: That'd be great. Chelsea Green Publishing is a great publisher. They're the one that published my book, but they're a, a Vermont company um, that is that walks the talk, that they publish books that are you know having to do with the... Um, kind of issues of today these green sustainable issues that we have today and they actually look for people to write books that address certain things and they um, do a very good job I had such a pleasant experience working with them as an author as a first time author um, that uh, you know I can't say enough about their um, how nice it was to work with them so Chelsea Green um, you can go to their website ChelseaGreen.com and you'll see you'll read all about it
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I agree. And they're like one of the few emails that like, I read it whenever it comes. I subscribe to their, I just, I just love their books. I have tons of their books and, um, I just can't say enough about them. And that's how I found you because I just, um, it came in one of the emails and said, check out this new book. And I bought it and have loved it.
1: that's great good
0: so tell everybody how do they connect with you if they want to sign up for coaching or they want to see your website and they want to see those greenhouses or anything
1: so you can go to katefarm.com. that's c-a-t-e-f-a-r-m.com um that and then uh that has some you know just it's a kind of informational kind of website and got some photo galleries and then i also have a website called richardwiswall.com where it's more for the consulting and workshop end of my life. And so you can look at that as well.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I know listeners are going to love this episode.
1: Well, I'm happy to contribute. Good luck with your efforts here, Jackie.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to check out our website, organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just Gardener. Organicgardner- podcast.com and you'll see the links to everything that we've talked about today in the show notes page and all the other episodes there um you can easily search for people by name you can download our uh ebook on organic gardening basics um and subscribe to our newsletter for updates and um just different things that are going on uh thanks for listening and remember to grow